We've been in Jonah for four weeks into our fifth sermon and to the final chapter. So if you've got a Bible and you use that, do, do open to Jonah chapter four. Uh, Jonah chapter four, if you've got a service sheet, uh, the text is also in there. So you can, you can see it in there as well. Let me pray for us and then we'll read God's word together. Our Father, we come humbly before you uh, this morning, knowing that we need to be uh, fed, knowing that we need to be strengthened, uh, knowing that we need our hearts uh, changed by your gospel and by your grace. So we pray that you come by your spirit this morning and do that for us. We pray you'd come and speak to us, open our eyes to places in our hearts where we are uh, acting sinfully towards you, open our eyes more and more to what Christ has done for us, we pray. And pray you fill our hearts uh, with joy to serve you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Jonah's just preached to Nineveh, uh, preached a message of judgment, uh, and Nineveh repented. This is chapter 3. Nineveh repented, and God relented, and did not destroy Nineveh as he promised that he would. So we come to chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said O Lord is not this what I said when I was yet in my country that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster therefore now O Lord please take my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat down under under it in the shade so he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that there might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so they were with it. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonas that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You Pity the plant for which you did not labour, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. What annoys you in other people? We asked you that this morning. What annoys you? And other people, what gets your gears uh, going? Perhaps if they're uh, rude, if they've been inconsiderate towards you or towards others with their, with their words and their actions. Perhaps if they're lazy, they haven't been pulling their weight while everyone around them has been working. And perhaps if they're arrogant, they think more of themselves than they should do. What annoys you about other people? What about if they're just too loving? Does that annoy you? What if they abound in love? 
What if they're merciful and kind and gracious? What if they're people who are just patient all the time? It'd be silly to be annoyed with them. And yet it's those characteristics in God, as we reach the end of the book of Jonah, that Jonah is angry at, that he's seething about, he's furious. Uh, this chapter takes us back to the beginning of the book, uh, where, Jonah, where the word of God came to Jonah and Jonah fled from God. And in this chapter, we discover the depths of Jonah's heart. Uh, for many of us, if we, if we know Jonah at all, this chapter may feel like a little bit of an add-on. All the exciting stuff in Nineveh has happened. And then we've got this funny chapter about a plant that withers and, withers and dies. Uh, but it's not an add-on at all. It's got a weird afterthought. Uh, it's where the book's been driving. Because in this chapter, we discover Jonah's heart and why he fled from the task of preaching to Nineveh in the first place. Uh, there's two scenes of crying. Two scenes of crying, verses 1 to 4 and verses 5 to 11. Two scenes of tears in this passage. If you've got kids, as uh, many of you do, uh, you know they, they cry for all sorts of reasons. They come to you uh, with tears in their eyes. They might be crying because they've been hurt. They might be crying because they, they're afraid. They might be crying because they're, they're hungry or they're tired. Or they might come crying to you because they're angry. And if you know what that's like when your child comes to you and they're angry and there's, there's tears of wrath in their eyes. Uh, tantrum is coming. Well, it's that kind of crying that we have in verses 1 to 4. Verses 1 to 4 is all about when we cry against God in anger. And we cry against God in anger. It says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Jonah's angry uh, because Nineveh has been spared by God, that they repented. And when God saw that they repented from their evil, chapter 3, verse 10, God relented of the disaster he, sent upon, that he was going to send upon them. Now, now, people have suggested many different reasons for why Jonah might be angry. It might be because he's proud, uh, because his prophecy has failed. He said, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days, but they weren't. Maybe he's prejudiced and patriotic. Nineveh are the enemy of Israel, and rather see them destroyed and the threat removed than see them live. And perhaps he's presumptuous. He assumes he knows better than God what is wise, what is more glorious for God to do. Now, all those reasons have some merit to them. I don't think you can cross any, any of them out. They, they might all be true to some extent, but I don't, I don't think they quite hit the nail on the head. So in verse 1, it says that Jonah was displeased, but what it really says is that Jonah thought it was exceedingly evil. If you look to the literal translation of it, it'll be, and Jonah thought it was exceedingly evil and he was angry. Evil, the same word that's been used throughout the book to describe what Nineveh has been doing. How God sees Nineveh. God saw Nineveh as evil, or Jonah sees what God has done as evil. He finds God sparing Nineveh to be morally repugnant. And Jonah has one thing right, doesn't he? And his anger, he has one thing right, and that is Nineveh do deserve destruction. They don't deserve to be spared. And he knows that God knows that they deserve destruction. Jonah's not the only prophet in the Bible preaching to Nineveh. Well, preaching about Nineveh, I should say. He is the only one preaching to Nineveh. Um, Nahum, uh, one of his contemporaries, uh, preached three chapters of God's wrath against Nineveh. Let me read a couple of verses. Nahum chapter 3, 
This is God speaking about Nineveh. He says there, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to their prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariots. God says in Nahum chapter 3, Behold, Nineveh, I am against you. I am against you. Nineveh is wicked. And Jonah, as an Israelite, would have had first-hand experience of that. He would have known how Nineveh uh, had been wicked in the past towards his own people, Israelites. He might even have seen something of it as he preached the message of judgment, walking through the streets, looking around him, seeing their evil. And so he's angry because he knows they're not getting what they deserve, what God says they deserve. And he always feared this would happen. Verse 2 and 3, he said, Is this not why? This is not what I said when I was dead in my country. Is this not why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? This is not why I ran. Because I knew. I knew what kind of God you were. I knew that you were a gracious God. I knew that you were a merciful God. I wonder if that's what you think of first when you think about God about his grace and his mercy. We often think of God as aloof and cold, don't we? Jonah says, I knew that you were gracious, that you were someone who lowers himself to the undeserving in mercy. We think of God as someone who's got a short fuse, someone who's got a short fuse, explodes quickly without much provocation, but, but God is slow to anger. I knew that about you. But you have a long fuse, not a short fuse. But you're bound in steadfast, steadfast love. That what flows out of you instinctively is steadfast love. I knew that about you. You see, God sparing Nineveh is not God acting out of character. It's God acting in character. Jeremiah 18, uh, verse 7. It's worth reading this because it applies almost directly to the passage we've been reading. Uh, if at any time, God says, I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom like Nineveh, that any time I declare against them, that I'll pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the dark disaster that I intended to do to it. And God threatens Nineveh and they repent and he relents. He's acting in character. And Jonah says, I, I knew it. I knew you were like that. And so I want to die, verse 3. Take my life. It would have been better if you had never rescued me at all from the ocean if I died in the belly of the fish than to see this happen. He is furious because the wicked, in his eyes, his wicked, are going free. They're not getting what they deserve. I wonder if suddenly Jonah's, Jonah's anger here isn't so unrelatable as we first thought. Doesn't our society, don't we kick against the wicked going free, that uh, kick against injustice, going unpunished. When that happens, we're furious. Uh, the cry of justice is what drives so many organizations today, whether it's organizations we agree with or disagree with. Justice is what they're seeking. And it's the basis for endless charities. It's the basis for great novels. Think about some of your favorite novels and guarantee probably somewhere in there there's a call to justice, To Kill a Mockingbird, for example. Most of us here probably would have read To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, what's that about? It's about seeking justice for a man who's been 
oppressed and mistreated because of the colour of his skin. If you've been on the news at all, you've seen a lot after, after the Football World Cup uh, where a bunch of English players missed a bunch of penalties, as I'm sure you know. Um, some of them were black and they've been receiving racial abuse online and the outcry against them has been incredible. Take a case most of us will know, uh, Jimmy uh, Savile, if you, if you don't know him, he was a, he was a popular TV presenter. He um, was loved in his time and he gave a lot of money to charities. Uh, but after he died, it was discovered that he used his celebrity status to, to mistreat and abuse children. And there was a great national outrage and outcry against him because he had died before anyone knew. He died before justice could be delivered to him before he could face up for his crimes. We see it everywhere, outcry against injustice. We kick against the wicked going free. Ingrained in all of us is a sense of moral order, that wickedness deserves punishment and that good deserves rewards. That's the bedrock on which we work, isn't it? And it's worth saying, particularly if you don't know the Bible too well, if you're visiting us and you're not a Christian, uh, scripture is passionate about justice. Okay, it screams from almost every page in it that God cares about the oppressed, about the widow. That God is passionate about justice. That evil must be punished. And if we can't relate to Jonah, uh, there might be something wrong with us. You hear it all the time today, don't you? That uh, I believe, someone says, I believe in a God who is loving and doesn't judge people. Can I say that only people who live comfortable, secluded, secure lives will say that. An idea of a God who refuses to judge, I think will evaporate pretty quickly as a good thing in lands soaked with innocent blood. In lands like Nineveh. And so Jonah says, I'd rather die than see the evil Ninevites go free. And then God comes in verse 4 and says, almost almost gently really, almost kindly, almost calmly, he says, do you do well to be angry? Children, if your parents say to you, should you be doing that? What's always the answer? Do you know? No. You shouldn't be doing that. Should Jonah be angry? No, you shouldn't be angry. It's not to say you shouldn't be angry at injustice. That is, that is a right for anger. That's what God is fiercely angry at in Jonah, the evil. But we shouldn't be crying out in anger against God's grace, the undeserving. There's two reasons for that, just before we move on to the next section. There's two blind spots that Jonah has, just worth us reflecting on. Uh, two blind spots that we have when we cry out against God in anger. Uh, it assumes, first of all, that God, for God to be merciful, he must be morally compromised. That's the mistake I think Jonah is making in this passage. He quotes God's character here in verse 2. And this is, a, this is, this is God's self-revelation of himself in Exodus 34. This is what God says about himself, that he is gracious and merciful, that, that he is slow to anger. And so Jonah is quoting back to God what God has said about himself. But he doesn't quote everything that God says about himself. God says this, but then he also says in Exodus 34, he says, I will by no means clear the iniquity. 
Now, there's a tension there, particularly in the Old Testament. How can God be merciful, as he says that he is, but also never clearing the iniquity, as he also says he is in the very next verse, in Exodus 34. Of course, that tension never not resolved until uh, we come to the New Testament and meet Christ, where God's justice and God's mercy meet. God is not sacrificing his justice in order to be merciful. Uh, the second blind spot, it assumes we deserve grace more than others. Uh, that we deserve it, and they don't. You see, Jonah is happy to receive grace for his flaws. See that in chapter 2, if you're with us, where he praises God for his salvation. He says, he praises the hope of God's steadfast love. He says, that's the hope I cling to. That's the love for me. And yet when that same grace is extended to others, then he grows angry. But no one deserves grace. We deserved grace, and there wouldn't be grace, would it? Grace is by definition undeserved to all of us. We do have amazing capacity to believe that I deserve it, don't we? That they don't, but I do. That I am in some way worthy of God showing his favour to me. We have amazing capacity to excuse ourselves from our sins, our temper, our lust, our gossiping tongue, and yet accuse and point the finger at people who who do the very same things. What's fascinating here in in Jonah 4 is that although those, those two things are pretty big blind spots for Jonah, it doesn't feel like God's response in verses 5 to 11 is primarily addressing them. It is to some extent addressing them, uh, but it doesn't feel like that's where he's driving his chisel in to defend his righteousness, his justice, or to flatten Jonah in his own self-righteousness. It doesn't seem to be God's priority here, although it is in other parts of Scripture. Rather, he seems to seek to change Jonah's tears. Do you remember I said there's two scenes of tears in the passage? Jonah's been crying in anger. Uh, But here it seems that God wants him to cry with him in compassion. To look at unbelievers like the Ninevites, especially those whom society and we deem least deserving of grace, if that was possible, and to cry for them in pity. He wants to draw Jonah in to understand why Jonah's heart is, is out of tune it's got a, it's, he's got a heart murmur, and God wants to draw him in so that his heart beats in time with his own. Verse 5, Jonah goes up out of the city and sits down. He makes himself a booth, doesn't he? He sits under the shade, and he fixes his eyes on Nineveh. He looks at Nineveh to see what will become of it. He's still nursing hope that God will still destroy as Nineveh deserves. And it's as Jonah's gazing upon the city that he hates that God comes to change him and do his work. Well, it's, it's a funny story in many ways. It's a funny acted out parable. God appoints three things. He appoints a plant. He makes a plant grow up. Clearly Jonah's booth wasn't sufficient. He made a poor booth and so God makes him another one. Um, and this booth saves him from his discomfort. Jonah's shade was inadequate. Uh, but this plant is way, way better. And he becomes very quickly deeply attached to it. I don't know if you're, if you're a gardener, you might know what this feels like. He's exceedingly joyful because of the plant, exceedingly glad. But then only a day later, God appoints a worm, and that destroys the plant. 
And then God uh, appoints a blistering east wind and the sun beats down on Jonah. And Jonah grows faint, scorched and miserable, disobedient and sorrowful. He says again, it is better that I die than live. And God comes to him and says, verse 9, do you do well? Do you hear the echo? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah, he should say no, but he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. You see, what God's done through appointing the plant, the worm and the wind, has changed the focus of Jonah's anger from the fact that Nineveh wasn't destroyed to the fact that the plant was destroyed to incite his pity for something, his compassion for a plant. And it's then that God hits home. That's when uh, he gives him his sucker punch by shifting the face of Jonah's anger. He shines a spotlight on Jonah's heart's murmur. And it's this, that he has inadequate pity. His pity, if you like, is pitiful. He compares his pity to the pity God has for Nineveh. He says, you pity the plant, Jonah. You pity this plant. Compare that to my pity for Nineveh. Let's talk about this plant, Jonah. What do you do for it? You didn't do anything. You didn't plant it. You didn't make it grow. It was a gift from me. You didn't labor over it, did you? You've only had it one day, Jonah. You've only had it one day. You've scarcely had time to grow attached to it. And now you're so attached to it that your pity has been excited. But it's a pity that it's excited because you find the plant attractive. Because it serves your needs, Jonah. Because of what it gave you. Now compare that to my pity. Compare your pitiful pity to my pity for Nineveh. Which one is greater? This city full of people. People I made, who I worked on, who I brought to life, who are made in my image, or your plot, only one day old. These people who have immortal souls, whose lives are held in the balance. Which pity is greater? What about the cattle, Jonah? What about the cattle? It's not just people who would die if I destroy the city. It would destroy other parts of my creation, the cattle, which I delight in. But most significantly, he says, this city has 120,000 people who do not know the right hand from the left. Can't you see, Jonah? They are evil. They are oppressors. They do deserve my judgment, but they are as lost as you are. They are lost with no sense of direction. They can't tell good from evil. They are spiritually blind, walking around in the dark. It doesn't excuse their wrong, but it does move my heart to pity. The word pity there, if you pulled out some of its meaning, it would mean something like having compassion with, your, with, with tears in your eyes. This is teary-eyed compassion. I have teary-eyed compassion over Nineveh because I know how wonderfully I made them. What I made them for. And yet they have fallen so far short. And they don't even realise it. They don't even know what could have been theirs. My friends, this, this is why we have 
a gospel to proclaim because of who God is. Yes, he's absolutely committed to justice, more committed than we are, in fact. But he's not a cold, calculating machine. He's also deeply moved to pity. It's in, it's in the depth of his pity. It's in the strength of his commitment to justice he comes in the person of Christ to bear judgment in our place. Which is almost too wonderful to grasp, isn't it? That the work of Christ, what he came to do, springs from the heart of God. That his incarnation, that his death, that his resurrection, that his ascension to rule the world, which is partly portrayed here in many ways, springs from the heart of God. Although judgment is what I deserve, as did Nineveh, because God is moved by pity, by my spiritual blindness, by the fact that I don't even realize how bad I am, God is moved by pity and grace is what I receive. That's the glory of the gospel. But not only do I receive grace, uh, but I receive it in such a way that justice is satisfied and I am made whole, that my sight is restored, that I begin to distinguish right from wrong again. God offers that restoration by his spirit to any who turn uh, to Christ, open to all, no matter what you've done, no matter if you're as evil in the world's eyes as Nineveh was. There's no evil too great uh, that God's abounding love cannot reach you. He has teary-eyed compassion over the people in this world. And that's where the book ends. On the note of God's teary-eyed compassion, God challenging Jonah with the question, should I, should I not, sorry, we don't know Jonah's answer. We don't know what became of him. He's a mysterious figure in scripture. He appears almost out of nowhere and disappears again. And that's the beauty of the book, really. The question flies over Jonah's head. We don't know his response. Over Jonah's head and pierces us. Asks us the question, what fills our heart with compassion? What moves us to teary-eyed pity? There's certainly a warning here. But like Jonah, we can set our emotions too low, our pity too low on the beauty of our garden, on the contents of our garage and our house, on the size of our house, on the size of our bank balance, on our career choices, on which school our children go to. Not that any of those are not important to some degree. We can set our emotions on them and yet not have much emotion left over for men and women, for people with immortal souls. It's certainly a challenge there, but this passage does more than that, doesn't it? It drives home the question to us, can I pity as God pities those who I deem least worthy? Can I look on them with teary-eyed compassion? It's easy to pity the oppressed, isn't it? It's easy to pity the homeless, to pity the widow, to pity those who have been acted against in evil. What about those who I despise in my heart? What about those who make my stomach churn? The rapist, the, the murderer, the molester, the tyrant. Of course, it's only the gospel that can release me to pity those in a way God pities them because I've already received that mercy for myself. That compassion is the hardest to come by, particularly if you're someone who has suffered something like that from the hands of another person to pity those who I deem most deserving of wrath. Rachel Dan Holliday 
Hollander, you might know uh, if you're a Christian. A famous court case a few years ago, uh, she was an American gymnast, uh, but it came to light that she was abused as a little girl by her coach, Larry Nasser, Nasser um, which and he was convicted three years ago, maximum life imprisonment. Uh, but Rachel, uh, Rachel's also a Christian. And it, it becomes evident if you watch her trial, if you watch particularly her testimony, that her heart uh, beats in time with God's. Uh, she, she gives her testimony. Uh, she looks at Larry, her abuser, who has given her so much pain and, and grief and hurt for so many decades. And he's sitting there just three metres away. And he looks at him. She says, you deserve this. It's right that you're going to prison. It's right that you're being punished. But she says, I pity you. I pity you, Larry. Why? Because you've become a man, she says. You've become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. You've lost the ability to distinguish good from evil. You can no longer define and enjoy what is truly good. You don't know what true sacrificial love is. You've lost the ability to truly love. You, don't, you, you can't experience it for yourself because you're blind. You have, she says to him, you have shut yourself off from every truly beautiful and good thing that God has made, and I pity you for it. She goes on to say that, Larry, the Bible says that you should be crushed for your sin, cast into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck and perished for what you've done. But this is where the gospel is so sweet, she says. This is where the gospel is so sweet, that God extends his grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And I extend that to you. Can you imagine that? This is the gospel we believe in. If you're a Christian, this is the gospel we believe in. That the most lost, the most depraved, including ourselves, might find grace. Purely because God's heart is moved in teary-eyed compassion when he looks at us. Let's pray. Well, all through this book of Jonah, you've been teaching us about your grace, about your love. And even though uh, we don't deserve it, even though Jonah doesn't deserve your grace, even though the Ninevites didn't deserve your grace, but even though what we all deserve is your judgment, yet when you look at us and our lostness and our spiritual blindness, you are moved with compassion for us. Pray that would strengthen us to walk with you, to live for you, and to glorify you in our lives, now and ah, forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.